This is episode 49 of Ben and Clayton Eat the Bible, the companion podcast to Calvary's Read the Whole Bible in a Year plan, with which we are almost finished, brothers and sisters. <laughs> the end is in sight. Just in time to start again. Uh, I'm not committed to that. <laughs> <laughs> and so the last few weeks, our the reading plan has been in the book of Acts, and so we've been focusing more on the letters of the Apostle Paul as they've come up in the reading plan. Uh, and uh, this week we are looking at Ephesians and Colossians. So I guess we can take Ephesians first. Okay. Tell us about why Paul wrote Ephesians, Clayton. So Ephesians is unique among the letters of Paul. We don't know this for sure, but it seems like rather than being a letter written specifically for a specific situation in Ephesus, that this is what's called a circular letter. So at one point Paul mentions somewhere, a letter to Laodicea um, that we don't have. And there's been speculation, you know, what if we found that letter? Well, my my hunch is that it's this one, um, that what happened is he wrote a letter that was intended to go to different churches and then put a prescript at the beginning of it, a greeting for each church. It's kind of like if you were doing a Christmas card and you had one Christmas card that you redid each time, but you you changed the, the very first, you know, dear name, and then maybe a sentence that's specific to them. And so it seems like that's what we have in Ephesus, that this is an example of a generic is not the term I want to use, but a circular letter that was meant for churches far and wide that Paul had founded. But probably generally within what was called Asia Minor Mm -hmm. or what country of Turkey today. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So not like making the loop of the entire Mediterranean. No, no, no. This was for a, a bundle of churches. Yeah. Paul's going to tell the Ephesians that they are elected or they're chosen in mm-hmm. Christ. He's going to tell them that they've been given the Holy Spirit as a guarantee that they're co-inheritors with Jesus. Uh, he's going to tell them that they're already seated in the heavenly places with Christ. Like what would be the, you know, what would kind of be the pastoral or, or churchly reason sure. to to want to tell the, the, the people this? So identity in the ancient world was often was tied to many things, but one of the things it was tied to was inheritance, right? And so you are, um, if you are the child of a person that dies, that leaves you something, then your identity matters a great deal. We see Paul talking a lot about identity Mm -hmm. here and things that confirm identity as one of God, someone who belongs to God, one of his chosen. And so what I think is happening here, again, we've talked about the, the Gentile and Jewish Christian conflicts. And there was a thought that the promises of Abraham might be something that are for the Jews and not for the Gentiles. What Paul is wanting everyone to hear is that the land promise is expanded. So in Abraham's, in the Abrahamic covenant, they're promised the land of Israel, right? A land flowing with milk and honey. But with Jesus, one of the things that is true of us is that we are inheritors of the whole world, right? The whole world that is being renewed, a world that will be, um, will become combined with mixed, I mean, there's no good term here. Married. Married to uh, heaven, right? And and those who belong to Jesus will be inheritors of that. And so one, you could quibble about whether or not Christians are also inheritors of, of Israel, but if they're inheritors of the entire world, then Israel gets brought in alongside that. In other words, Paul is saying, I in this way, he'd be saying, stop quibbling over Jewish and Gentile. The important part of the most important part of you is your identity in Christ, and the promise we have in that is so much greater. It 
it imposes over, it comes over any promise that was made to the Jewish people. Mm. And I think that that is, that is present here. We, there's a whole lot of inheritance talk here and assurance of inheritance talk yeah. here. Um, the, as far as elect goes, one of the, the questions that comes up with this a lot, and I don't know if you and I will disagree, um, is, you know, we, we see in your NIV, we see the word predestined. Sometimes you'll see foreordained or something like that. But the, the idea being chosen ahead of time. Mm-hmm. And, and that comes with this idea of being elect. And what does it mean to be one of the elect? I don't see this as God saying that you, Bob, or whatever your name is as you listen to this, you were specifically hand-chosen by God. Um, he knew you and knew that you would choose him from the beginning. I'm not disputing that, but that's not what Paul's talking about here. When he, he talks about the we in him in verse 11, we were also chosen having been predestined according to the plan of him. The we is cumulative, that this, this promise of inheritance for those who believe in Jesus was from the beginning planned. The we is the church and not the not that we individuals have been plucked because God is, um, for some reason, has chosen us and not others. And I think that that's how I read that passage. And so, again, it's, it's an emphasis instead of on the individual or, or an individual's ethnic background, it's the family we have joined by becoming Christians. And that family has been chosen and predestined and et cetera. I'm glad... I appreciate you pointing out just the uh, communal versus individual piece of this, right? Mm -hmm. Because the letters are almost always addressed to y'alls, not yous. We just don't feel right saying y'all in a uh, uh, holy book. And so in English, it can really lead to a lot of confusions. Most languages don't have that problem. Not just individual Christians, which obviously the group is made up of individual Christians. So, I mean, it, you know, it flows back and forth. But I think just as I've reflected on, you know, the obsession with, yeah, who's who's elected, who's not, what does that mean? You know, does that mean that only some people can be saved and that there's a big list somewhere in the sky of the people who are going to be saved and the people who are going to be damned and there's no changing that? And I don't, I mean, (laughs) go ahead and read Ephesians. Paul says nothing about any of that. You know, we can we can draw implications, and we've said this throughout as we've read the Bible. There is a distinction between what the Bible, well, I want to kick myself for using this phrase, for what the Bible says, and then the theological implications that we spool out of that. And it's not wrong to we have theologize. To right, yeah. we have to. And I think the Bible invites that, but then keeping clear in our minds the difference between the two. And I think that... You know, we can we can read something like Ephesians and then read back into what we already think, you know, we think about these things. And I don't remember where I read this or where I learned this, but somebody at some point pointed out to me, you know, of like, where did Paul get this language about election? Like, did he just make it up or like, where did it come from? But yeah, I mean, he got it from the Old Testament. He got it, you know, I think when you go back and you look at Deuteronomy, there it is again, the gem of the Old Testament. You know, there's a lot of this election and and choosing talk, you know, and specifically, I think it's Deuteronomy 7, you know, where it's 6 or 7, maybe it's 8. Anyway, somewhere, it's one of those where the text just talks about that God chose the Israelite family, but he didn't pick them, you know, for any of these reasons because they were strong or because they were wealthy or whatever, but because his purposes are going to be accomplished through them. So I think you take that, you bring it forward to Ephesians, and I don't think that what Paul's saying is, so you, church, are the saved club. Congratulations. You get to meet Willy Wonka at the end of the tour. (laughs) 
I don't know why that's in my mind today. <laughs> Rather, I think he's saying, you are the ones who have been chosen through whom God is going to work out his purposes, yes. which will include the saving of these other people. Yes. And so to be elect is not this hermetically sealed, you know, we're the ones who are saved and nobody else. You know, and I think that the Old Testament context is vital to to understanding that. And I think that when that, again, when that door was open for me, I was like, oh, I get it. You know, because I used to, this would be one of those things that I kind of chafed against. Like, well, why would God do that? Why would he have a big list? You know, and there were people who were just consigned to hell forever. And that, you know, that doesn't make any sense. Of course, I suppose God is the creator, so he's free to do whatever he wants. But just as I was mulling through all these things as a younger Christian. But I think, yeah, having that that piece of saying, okay, you know, what this is about is what it was about for Abraham, right? I'm choosing you and your family so that the nations of the world will find blessing through you. And I think that changes. So that election, and there are certainly privileges. I mean, inheritance language, I mean, that's that's still there. But there's also a great amount of, of responsibility, really, that we're the elect ones. Yes. You know. That we're the ones, that means that we're the ones on the spot, right? Like we're his agents here. We're, the, we're his people in this place to go out and accomplish his will. <laughs> Every privilege found for Christians in the New Testament is a responsibility. What I'm not saying here and what Ben is not saying is that if you are a Calvinist, you must be wrong. Um, we're not, I don't think that that really has anything to do with this passage. Although there are a few key words that makes it seem like maybe it does. Um the other thing that I would say is that if you are, and I've been asked this several times, is there a place where Paul very concisely lays out what we call the gospel? Um, there is no one place where all the things that we would want to say about the gospel are laid out. There are hundreds of places where we can identify the gospel being being described, but a good summary of what we mean by the gospel is present in Ephesians 1, in verses 3 down through 14. Um we have a picture of of what we mean by the gospel here, and I think that, that is um, that's a useful thing to know, and uh, a thing that's worth memorizing or going to and and reading and meditating on um, is Ephesians one. And so there's a lot in Ephesians we'd like to talk about, but I think specifically chapter two is just very important. Um, so we hear these verses a lot. Um, I'm thinking specifically of two one to ten. Um, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of the world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air. On and on he goes. And then we get to verses 8 through 10. For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is a gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. These three verses are so important. They're such a major part of the Christian understanding of salvation and an emphasis that we are the, the Pauline emphasis of faith in Jesus over the works of the Torah from, from the Mosaic Covenant, I think are, are key to Paul's message. And we have those here. And chapter two is one that it sticks with you because of the way that, that Paul words everything. It's just, it's beautifully written and... I think an important passage. Well, and I think as well, just as it, as it clicks together with his overall, you know, the overall theme of the letter seeming to be, and I think you're right, kind of this idea of inheritance and, and family, again, one big happy family in Jesus. So saying, you know, and I think seeming to be speaking maybe to the Gentiles, especially, 
you know, that they were not in the covenant family. They were under the power of the devil, you know, all these things. And God has saved them out of that. Also, for I think for the benefit of the Judean Christians to hear that of like, that's a real, you know, salvation they really have been brought into the covenant. And then he goes on to talk about that starting in verse 11, um, you know, that he's bringing these old human natures, you know, together into something new. <clears throat> and then I think it's maybe the only other thing maybe we can touch on. And yeah, there is, there's a lot, but this isn't an Ephesians podcast. It's just Paul's, uh, his, his comments on spiritual warfare there at the end kind of one of the, the parts that Ephesians is famous for. The armor of God. Um, the imagery of which comes from Isaiah uh, 51, maybe? 52? Towards the end of Isaiah, yeah. Isaiah talks about Yahweh having a breastplate and armor and, and all these different things, which is a neat, I mean, Paul, the way he develops that is an, is this, I think, a really cool saying. So the creator has this armor and we as believers can also put that armor on, like God's own armor. Again, looping in with these themes of inheritance and, and being true sons and daughters, like we can put on dad's, you know, old armor, so to speak, and, and go to war. But not with other people. And I think that, that you know, Christians, modern Christians, there is a range of opinion on, like, what exactly the biblical authors mean when they talk about Satan <laughs> and the devil, you know. And I think you have some people, the two ends of the spectrum, right? The one would be, you know, it's just a made up thing that they kind of use as a shorthand way of talking about, you know, whatever, societal evil and base primitive impulses and all those different things. Then you have the other end, which is like there is literally a guy with red skin and horns and a pitchfork sitting in the center of the earth causing me to, you know, eat too many pieces of candy <laughs> neither of those i think are true <laughs> certainly not the whole truth you know of on their own um but i don't know if it's and and we may i don't know like i think it's okay for there to be a bit of a range of opinion on what the devil is as long as we all are united in our like stance against it yes you know being one of opposition and i think that that honestly for us today like paul's words here at the end of ephesians 6 really are i think vital for christians especially but even for the world at large you know to to kind of wrap our minds around that the enemy the opponent is not one another you know you think about yes. that in american politics you think about that with all of the actual wars raging and it's true even there you know that even between russians and ukrainians they're not actually each other's real enemy and i'm not denying that there's a war happening bombs are dropping and people are dying like that's all really happening but I think Paul's what Paul's saying here is there is something else. There is somebody else that is the actual enemy. Yes. Something possesses people. Something drives people into into violence and opposition towards one another or creates the conditions for that to happen. And I think we call that thing Satan, whatever, whether it's a red man or whether it's a catch all term for, you know, whether it's a dude, you know, <laughs> kind of the old medieval character of Satan or whether, it, you know, like either way, it's like that's. That's our that's our real opponent, and I think that that's just a it's just a it's a timely word for us these days. Colossians is another. I mean, all the letters of Paul are interesting. Coloss, Colossians in particular, but in Colossians we have some really important passages. Um, some really important bits of theology are discussed. The big passages in Colossians start with Colossians one fifteen, talking about Jesus. 
He is the invisible. He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. And then it talks about what Jesus has done, right? For by him, all things were created and whether thrones or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He's before all things and in him, all things hold together. Um, what we see in Paul is what is called often a high Christology. And so Paul's beliefs about Jesus were very well developed and very, um, I don't know, aware of, of Jesus' godhood as well as humanity, his divinity as well as his humanity. The, the things that get described as being later theological developments are actually really present in Paul. Now, some people dispute whether or not Colossians was actually written by Paul. I don't really think that there's, I mean, the the way that, that it reads, it's either a very intentional, very good forgery, or it's, it's written by Paul. And as you read it, my encouragement would be to read these passages about Jesus and just sit with them and be reminded that while it's important for us to remember that Jesus is human, uh, that he is our friend and and our Lord that we have access to, that his greatness, his awesomeness is impossible for us to fathom. And, and I feel like we've, we get that in Paul. And that makes the love that he has for us just so much more remarkable. Yeah, it's interesting, you know, uh, Colossae was also in Asia Minor. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's a neighboring, I mean, I don't know how close it actually would have been to Ephesus, but... And there's there's crossover bits between Colossians and Ephesus yeah, that are pretty similar, close. Uh, mm-hmm. A similar uh, sort of place. And again, I mean, we see, you know, Judean Gentile issues reflected in Colossians. Not as much, it seems like, than some of the other letters. So, mm-hmm. I mean, it was present, but not... Maybe as as uh, it seems like there were more issues with just other religious ideas and cults, which is more Colossae, of a Gentile problem yeah, than a Jewish than problem, necessarily with the with, with the Jews, the Judeans. Um, but it's also just interesting to think about. You know, we talked a lot about this with the Romans, and we've talked about it the whole time that you know we know that like the historical social context of these times and places is not uh, thrilling to everybody, and it doesn't have to be. But I think it's always the more that you can learn, <laughs> you know, and find out. I think it, 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 in my experience, it has only blessed and deepened my my reading and my appreciation of, of these letters. You know, so I think with Colossians, you know, you think about these Gentile Christians are coming out of a basically sort of a Greek, you know, religious mythological background. And those stories are full of half God, half man figures. Yes. Like Hercules, you know, running around and doing some heroic deeds, but also doing some really horrendous things. You know, when you actually read the uh, Greek myths as they were told, you know, there was a lot of violence and brutality, which, of course, I guess there's also in the Old Testament, but that the gods themselves are, are committing these things. And so I think there's there's just some there's an interesting interplay here with with how Paul talks about Jesus and presents Jesus as like the real you know divine human uh, rather than yes. these sort of uh, criminal counterfeits you know that were running around in the, in the stories of the day. I also think it's 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 probably worth just pointing out, and most translations will reflect this: that the verses that Paul was, or that Clayton was referring to, starting in verse fifteen, are formatted differently than the rest of the letter. And this is because it's a poetic, it's mm-hmm. a poem. We don't know if either Paul wrote this, or I think I tend to more towards that he often incorporated like hymns or like creedal statements, which also might have been sung, you know, that the early church was just using. 
you know, and so I think that that even just strengthens what you were saying, Clayton, about that it's not that they, the church decided Jesus was God 300 years after. If Paul's quoting a hymn. It was even before he wrote right, the letter. It was even earlier than him. And they would have already, you know, and common enough that Christians from different parts of the, the Roman world would have known it. Um, and so I just think it's kind of, it's just neat. You know, I think that we see this here. We see it in Philippians. Paul quotes famously. We'll talk about that next week. A hymn. Um Romans, there's a few times, I mean, he quotes a lot of scripture, but there's a few times where it seems like he might be quoting hymns. And then Revelation, I think there's a yeah. lot of good, uh, probably early Christian songs and hymns that are that are being quoted there. So it's just a, that's a neat little window, I guess, into their their hymnody, I believe is the, <laughs> well, the formal because term. I want to talk a little bit about in Colossians 2. So there's a couple of things going on in Colossians 2. And we've talked a lot about questions about the law hold, hanging over um, the life of, of believers. But one of the things that I think is important to discuss as well is <clears throat> we tend to think that our religion and our culture are not the same thing. We may think that one in, that our religion has, has heavily influenced our culture, and so our culture has some elements of our religion. But we tend to see ourselves as having separate worlds as far as that goes. American culture and American religion are not the same. Well, not only are we we pretty wrong about that, I think that a lot of our cultural practices um, end up being religious practices without us even realizing them um, to be that way. But in the ancient world, there was no concept of that. People did not distinguish culture from religion. And so to be a Greek, living in a Greek town, and to become a Christian, and to not want to worship other idols, you have this problem because... The worship of these these other gods and these pagan practices were a regular part of culture. So to be a good Colossian, you had to be willing to take on certain practices and and um, acts of what would often be called worship to these pagan deities. And so one of the things that was so hard for these Christians is like, what do we what do we do? Like Paul is is telling us about the God Man. But what do we do with stories of Hercules? And, and you know, to go to the town meeting to be able to vote, I have to first give a, uh, a coin into the pot that is a act of worship to Hercules. And if I don't right. do that, I'm identifying myself right. in a way that is... Or, you know, all of the meat available at the market is from been, animals sacrificed yes. to a pagan god. And so Paul is, Paul is trying to talk them through how to navigate their Christian faith in the midst of all of these different beliefs. And one of the things that he's saying is, I, I I mean, there's a lot here and you can read him, but I think one of the things that he's encouraging people to not not worry about or, or, or be confused about is that there are not competing narratives about which gods are powerful. Our God is not one among many um, peers. Our God is, is the God. He is above all and we belong to him. And so our interaction with these other practices, these pagan practices, are changed by the fact that we belong to one who is greater than they are. And he he takes us through that um, that the the other rulers, other powers, they've all been disarmed. You know, they're 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 no longer uh, um, in power in the way that they used to be. And so I think that that's fascinating because it, as I read Colossians two, I reflect often on the way that culture and religion mix together so well. One of the things that we have to be careful of is to let American culture infect our religious practice, which is something that happens all the time. You know, there is a a tendency among Americans to think that the reason why we are so wealthy and so blessed is because we're so good, 
right? This, and that's a very big part of American culture. Um, a need for materialism and a desire for entertainment. All of these things are part of our, our, our worship practices, but they're very much a part of our culture. And, and there's others. Um, and I just, when I read Colossians 2, I'm always reminded of this. The term is syncretism, our tendency to let our culture infect our religious practice. So we need to be careful about it. Yeah. I mean, I think I would, like, I think that there's no avoiding it. Like, I think that the ancients were right about this and we're wrong. I in terms think... of that there is, there, I mean, I, there is a distinction between culture and religion. But, and now it's sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy that since we think there is a distinction, you know, they're distinct. Um, but, like, I think there is a lot of overlap for us. Like, I mean, right now we're entering into the Christmas season, you know, mm-hmm. there's all sorts of things that people do that aren't Christian people, but they are doing Christian things. But then also vice versa, you know, kind of the secular aspect of the holiday that yeah. we participate in. Like, there's a Santa Claus idol on the square. That's fine. Like, I'm not going to go kick it over. <laughs> <laughs> I think I would say, let me clarify then to say, when culture and, and faith clash, one of the things we have to do is not allow things to feel harmless just because they're cultural, yeah, but to identify to what is, is harmful and counter to the gospel and resist it. Yeah. And to try and discern or just to keep in mind that just because it's what we do as Americans, that doesn't mean it's good. Or that God is pleased by it. Yes. Um, you know, one of the things I think about, you know, is debt. Like, we are so debt-ridden. And the Bible's pretty clear <laughs> about debt. <laughs> Holding debt over people, yeah. You know, and so it's like that. And I'm not, I mean, I'm a homeowner. I have a mortgage. I have $114,000 of debt. <laughs> Our whole like economy runs on a right, thing the whole that is counter to the is, biblical. is built mm-hmm. on the foundation of debt and credit, which is which is alien to, you know, the the authors of the Bible, the people, you know. And some of that is just, again, it's the cultural differences between now and then. But it's at least it's at least just considering every now and then, uh-huh. <laughs> you know, and, and not the and, and some Christian groups. And we see this throughout history. There have been those who have who have hit the eject button and have formed their own counterculture. And I don't like I think I think it would be wrong to insist that all Christians yes. go and do those things. But for the people who are convicted to go do that, good, like follow your convictions, you know. <laughs> like yeah, I I just think that that it's a it's a constantly kind of moving thing, right? Yes. Like you don't just you know people and I don't you know people sometimes like they they caricature the Amish right as being like stuck in the past and all these different things, and obviously Amish folks have made the decision they've separated themselves in these ways. They also interact with the broader culture in other ways as well. But at least my understanding is that even for Amish communities, like they don't all have the same strictures and, and rules about what tools and technology they can and cannot use are all a little different yes because they all get together and discuss more or less like what would be the impact if we started using yes. dot 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 and i think that's actually a very wise way to go about things you know we here in the in normal world you know over here like we don't churches i think can sometimes function as that i mean there's no you know if calvary had a conversation about like should we use virtual reality and decided no, like that wouldn't stop our people from using no, virtual reality. <laughs> um, and, and it probably shouldn't, right? We don't want that, that kind of power over people. But there are certain people that... But the conversation is worth having, yeah. you know, as a church, as households, you know, as whatever. And not just with technology, but just as we're thinking about. You know, I know that there are some Christians, I referenced Santa Claus earlier, 
who are pretty militant about Santa Claus's takes a focus away from Jesus. He is not a part of Christmas. You know, they don't use Santa Claus decorations. They don't, you know, and like, an, and if that's your conviction, I am totally at peace with that. Go and I won't impose Santa Claus upon you. I love Santa Claus. Uh-huh. I worship Santa Claus. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. But like, I don't, I don't have, I don't share that conviction. It's yeah. like, I'm not bothered that there'll be a Santa Claus on the square along with baby Jesus. You know, I'll have Santa Claus decorations in my house. I love movies about Santa Claus, you know, mm-hmm. along with all the rest of it. I mean, obviously we're celebrating the birth of Jesus, but like for me, I don't have that same conviction, but like I can, I can appreciate how yeah. other followers of Jesus have arrived there and I don't begrudge them that. And my, my conviction may change, you know, over the course of time. I don't know. This has been Ben and Clayton Eat the Bible. Stay hungry, my friends. Ben and Clayton Eat the Bible is a podcast ministry of Calvary Community Church. All contents are under copyright. Our theme music is by Alex Productions. Any thoughts and opinions are solely mine and Clayton's. Look, you've done it to me a hundred times. What? (laughs) It's just allergies. No, no. (laughs) No, no. It's just allergies. It's just allergies. That I thought it was allergies and was actually an illness.